Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 72, A Game of Crowns. No new Patreon supporters because, well, I recorded the last episode 24 hours ago and no new supporters since then. But as always, consider supporting. You get a lot of cool stuff from it. And again, even if you have an idea, if you are thinking like, you know, I'd love to support, but I wish I could get X, Y, or Z from the podcast, uh, just write me, get in touch, let me know. I'm always looking for more ideas of cool stuff I could get you all. So get in touch, consider supporting. All right, so we're going to jump right into it today. Last time, we saw Bayezid solidify his place on the Ottoman throne as his brother became a prisoner in the West. We also saw him exert himself over Wallachia and make that state a stable Ottoman vassal for the first time in many, many years. Bayezid also captured two vital Moldavian port fortresses on the Black Sea, leading to a war between the Ottomans and Poland. Ultimately, however, however, neither side could really pull anything out of that war. Neither side could pull off a victory, and so the war sort of ended inconclusively. Matthias Corvinus, king of Hungary, meanwhile led a successful campaign against Austria, conquering much of the country, including its capital, Vienna. But he ultimately died without a clear heir, leading to Vladislaus, king of Bohemia, becoming the new king of Hungary. Now, after several years of relative peace, the question of just what a post-Matthias Corvinus world will look like hangs in the air. Well, the world is not going to have to wait long, because while Matthias died in April, by November, Hungary was already subject to invasion. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Remember from last time that Matthias had one son, and an illegitimate one at that. The Hungarian king was desperate to legitimize young John Corvinus because 27 years previously, Matthias had signed the peace treaty of Wiener Neustadt, which stated that if he died without a legitimate heir, the Hungarian throne would pass to Emperor Frederick of Austria, or his heirs. So, remember, Matthias had just fought a war with Frederick of Austria, and so the possibility that because he had but one illegitimate son that his heir could be this enemy of his, well, it was a very real possibility. It really stung. He was desperate to make sure this would not be the case. And so now no one can really deny that the Austrian royal house, that Frederick, had a totally legitimate claim to the Hungarian throne. What remained to be seen was whether they could come take it. Because if you remember how Matthias took the throne to begin with, he was chosen by a diet after the death of Ladislaus. Now that process would begin again. So it would be interesting, it would be curious to see how the nobles of Hungary would react. Because remember, the nobles are going to act in their own interests when deciding a new monarch. Well, as we learned last time, None of those nobles seemed ready to support John Corvinus in spite of of what Matthias tried to do. And so the young man has been basically run out of town. 
given the title of duke in Slavonia and told to just like go stay out of everyone's business. No one's interested in seeing you on the throne. And so let's kind of take a step back here. And who is actually in the running to be the next king of Hungary? It's a bit of game show, right? Well, there are four candidates. John Corvinus, we already know about him. Maximilian of Austria, Frederick's son. Now, both of them are, have some kind of legitimacy, some claim to the throne, but very little support. Though Stephen of Moldavia did support Maximilian with an eye on making sure the crowns of Poland and Hungary weren't united. Uh, so, you know, Maximilian did have one supporter, but it wasn't nearly enough to have an impact. Um, but still, you know, Stephen of Moldavia was concerned because, as we'll see in a second, there was a real possibility that Poland and Hungary could be united. And this was dangerous for Moldavia because in the past, whenever they had bad relations with either Poland or Hungary, they could always kind of rely on the other one. And if they were united, this would greatly limit Moldavia's ability to kind of geopolitically maneuver. So the two remaining candidates in this little who's going to be king of Hungary game show are actually brothers. And in fact, to answer the question of who these brothers were, we can go all the way back to the previous king before Matthias, King Ladislaus the Posthumous. Now, Ladislaus died at age 17, so you could probably guess that these two uh, brothers in the running are not his children, but they are his nephews, the sons of his sister. And, well, his sister was lucky enough not to marry just any old schlub, but the king of Poland, Casimir IV. And so, well, these two sons have a really good claim to the throne. They are descended from the last, you know, previous king before Matthias. And uh, just for good measure, they're the sons of the king of Poland, which, you know, looks nice on a resume. And, well, when you know it, the eldest of these two sons was someone we know very much about. It was Vladislaus, the king of Bohemia, who had ironically fought a war with Matthias over the crown of Bohemia. And now, his parents actually wanted his younger brother, the other brother in contention, John Albert, to be elected king of Hungary. Because, well, Vladislaus was already a king, and it just didn't seem fair for him to get to be a king again when John Albert wasn't any kind of a king. But that wasn't the real reason. They also wanted to make sure their sons uh, would rule somewhere. Each one of them would have some kingdom. They wanted to place them all over the place. And... John Albert, to be fair, was already heir to the throne of Poland. And so he really embodied, uh, you know, Stephen of Moldavia's greatest fear that if he were to become king of Hungary, it could unite those two kingdoms. Whereas for Vladislaus, uniting king, the kingdom of Bohemia and the king of Hungary was much less of a concern to anybody. Bohemia just wasn't that powerful of a place. But in any case, despite the fact that uh, the King of Poland and his wife thought that uh, John Albert would be the better candidate, Vladislaus wasn't exactly in the mood to defer the more powerful title of King of Hungary to his younger brother, and so the brothers were going to have to kind of fight it out. So, Vladislaus quickly positioned himself amongst the Hungarian nobles to try to gain their support. Now, they already favored him somewhat because he had ruled Bohemia, and the way he had done that made it clear that he was going to respect their rights and independence. So that was a big plus for him. He had also pledged to marry Matthias Corvinus's exceptionally wealthy widow, Beatrice of Naples. 
This, combined with the fact that his supporters had already sort of defeated young John Corvinus in battle, meant that by July of 1490, Ladislaus was the clear person ahead and was elected by the Diet. So this means we're done? Not so much. John Albert, Vladislaus's younger brother, is not ready to give up. And so, in spite, but in spite of John Albert's kind of ongoing claim to the throne, by September, Vladislaus was crowned in, and I'm going to pull back on my year of living in Hungary and see if I can pronounce this city correctly, Sekeshvehervar. Sekeshvehervar. I think that's probably something approximating the name of the place where he was crowned. But in any case, fortunately for all of us, he then went on to settle in Buda, which is nice and easy to pronounce. So that's it. Vladislaus has won, but his brother's not giving up. But with Vladislaus's victory, the crowns of Hungary, Croatia, and Bohemia are now united in one. Technically, you know, if you're king of Hungary at this point, you also claim to be king of Bulgaria, but that doesn't really mean anything. But technically, you should know it's, you know, it's on their resume. They're also claiming, yes, we're king of Bulgaria in exile. Though, of course, oddly enough, you know, if you look at a, a list of the kings of Bulgaria, you'll see none of these people listed. But there are a whole string of monarchs during the Ottoman period who claimed this title. Just a fun fact there. Anyways, that same month when Vladislaus was uh, coronated, uh, John Albert invaded and captured the Hungarian city of Eger and laid siege to another city, Kassa, as well as asking for assistance from Stephen of Moldavia. But he was refused. Remember, Stephen explicitly did not want John Albert, of all people, to rule Hungary. So I'm not exactly sure why he decided to ask Stephen, of all people, for support. But there, there you go. Anyway, so Vladislaus and Matthias's widow Beatrice were then secretly married in October as they gathered their forces to defeat John Albert and secure the throne. But just as their preparations were underway, Frederick of Austria invaded. You know, clearly, you could say it was the autumn of sore losers. Everyone who had been rejected as king of Hungary was not ready to lay down and just sort of give up. Now, Vladislaus had won the crown, but obviously then it was time to fight for it. Frederick quickly captured several important cities. There's a somewhat hard-to-read map showing the campaign over the next four years on the website, so you can check that out for some context. But most importantly, Frederick quickly took Vienna. Retook Vienna, rather. Vladislaus leapt into action, first breaking the siege of Kassa and pushing his brother out of Hungarian territory. Then, within weeks, Frederick was forced to withdraw due to the oncoming winter and lack of funds though his forces had managed to press as far as the capital, Buda, itself. So, well, Vladislaus is looking a bit weak. You know, he's got two different invasions to contend with. He's fending them off, but, well, they're getting almost to his capital, so he should be concerned. And while I couldn't find an exact date, sometime during the final months of the year, 1490, Stephen of Moldavia appears to have invaded southern Poland, presumably while Poland was kind of distracted over the succession crisis and its Legitimate King Casimir was 63 years old and not ready to jump into action to defend uh, his country. And so Stephen managed to capture a southern region and claimed it for Moldavia before using its tax revenue to pay his Ottoman tribute he had to pay every year. So nice for him. So getting into the first weeks of 1491, the Poles, well, they're just taking it again. Uh, they're invaded by the Tatars, but managed to defeat the Tatar raid at the Battle of Zaslau. 
Though still the main action of this year is in Hungary. In February, John Albert agreed to give up his claim to the throne in exchange for some titles and some territory. But, well, he was only one of the people that Vladislaus had to contend with because Maximilian returned in 1491 as well and continued to campaign in Hungary, though I couldn't really find any detailed accounts of what he did that year. The Ottomans also sort of jumped in for their part and began their own raids into Hungarian territory, largely considering of Akonji cavalry, uh, which sort of ran around avoiding fortified towns and pitched battles. Really, they're just interested in taking what's not nailed down, materiel, people, and generally disrupting the Hungarian economy. And in that goal, they were actually quite successful as more and more peasants left their lands to avoid these Ottoman raiders. In doing so, they left the fields untilled, and the towns and castles were then without many food and supplies. In September, one of these Ottoman raids was consisting of 10,000 cavalry on its way across Croatia towards the Holy Roman Empire. Remember that Matthias used to allow these raids on his lands to sort of cross over them unencumbered, leading to that Austro-Hungarian War, but this time, well, that wasn't the case anymore. And so there were forces there to attempt to prevent the Ottomans from crossing over Croatia. And well, before the forces could get involved, the Ottomans were actually prevented from going any further by a flooded river. And so the Ottomans decided to contend themselves raiding Croatian territory instead. After about a month of good old-fashioned raiding, just like Papa used to do, the party turned around to return to Ottoman Bosnia, laden with loot and whatever they could steal, really. And on the way, they moved through the Verpili Pass. There, the Croatians executed a maneuver which would have been quite familiar to Bulgarian armies of the past and is therefore quite familiar to us. They waited for the Ottomans to enter the pass, this narrow, long pass. And once they were in there, the Croatians blocked both entrances and attacked. The Ottomans suffered considerable losses. Thousands of captives were freed, and it was a complete defeat for them. This loss forced the Ottomans to cease raiding for the time being. And so, throughout 1491, Vladislaus managed to fight off various attacks by the Ottomans and the Habsburgs alike. And by the end of the year, well, he'd seen his victories, but he was still eager to make peace just to gain some breathing room. This led to the Peace of Pressburg in November between Vladislaus and Maximilian. In it, Vladislaus agreed to give back all the Austrian territory which Matthias had taken some years earlier, and once again agreed that Maximilian and his family would be able to take the crown of Hungary for themselves should Vladislaus die without a legitimate heir. Now, okay, we saw how well that was adhered to last time, but still, for whatever reason, the Austrians were interested in this deal. And in any case, it meant that there was peace for Vladislaus, and he could focus on fighting off yet another invasion by his little brother, John Albert, who, despite the peace that they had just made, well, was, I guess, still not ready to completely give up his claim to the throne. So, now seems like a good time to mention this interesting little fact. Now, remember Vladislaus married Matthias's widow Beatrice in secret? Well... Evidently, right before that, he made a declaration that he was marrying, quote, under duress, end quote, 
in a sense that the marriage that was about to happen was not going to be valid. And so almost as soon as Beatrice's money helped Vladislav secure the throne, he initiated divorce proceedings. Now, when word got out, this was an absolute scandal, and it took until 1508 for the divorce to be completed as a result. Remember, at this point, uh, you know, Hungary is a very Catholic country, and if you're going to get a divorce in the Catholic Church, you basically need an annulment. Uh, so there's a lot of technicalities, and it's really up to the Pope whether or not he wants to give it to you. Uh, this is, you know, the cause for uh, Henry VIII and all his shenanigans. So you can get an idea of how messy this got very quickly. But still, you know, this dragged on for a long time, and it took actually until 1508 for the divorce to complete. And by this point, Beatrice's lands and wealth were taken by her side in the divorce, and she went back to Naples, where she soon died. Kind of a tragic story of uh, Vladislaus being pretty much a complete jerk. Just marrying this woman, using her money and resources to gain the throne, and then saying that, uh, you know, you can go now. But in any case, Vladislaus was now firmly on the throne. And now that he's in this position, he promised to rule from Buddha. In other words, to focus on Hungary and to not so much focus on his lands in Bohemia. But he also promised not to attempt to consolidate and centralize power in the way that Matthias had done. So it was clear that he would keep both promises because fairly quickly after things settled down, Vladislav showed that he had actually very little interest in influencing events in his kingdom or farther afield. Basically, he had won his crown, and now he intended to relax and just enjoy it. Fortunately for his brother John Albert, who had just failed to take the Hungarian throne, well, it didn't mean he was going to be consigned to irrelevance, because that next year, 1492, their father, Casimir IV of Poland, died. He had ruled for just a few days shy of 45 years. In fact, he actually took the throne following the death of of Vladislav III in the Crusade of Varna. Remember his death at the Battle of Varna way, way back, a half a century before this? Well, that's actually how Casimir came to the throne, and just now he's dying. It seems like a lifetime ago because, well, in this period, 45 years was a pretty decent lifetime. Well, in any case, now what this meant was that the two brothers uh, had their own areas of responsibility, as well as another brother. So, with the death of Casimir, here's how it shook out. The eldest brother, uh, Vladislaus, right? So he's king of Bohemia, king of Croatia, king of Hungary, technically king of Bulgaria, but nobody cares. Then you've got John Albert, he's king of Poland. And then you have their younger brother, Alexander. He now becomes Duke Grand Duke of Lithuania. So Vladislaus lays claim to the throne of Poland after his father died, but, well... This didn't really go anywhere, and, you know, little uh, Matthias' son John had left with all the treasury, and so Vladislav, after fighting all these wars and uh, the fights with his uh, divorced, well, soon-to-be-divorced wife, he didn't have the money to try to fight John Albert over the throne of Poland, uh, and in particular, he didn't have money to pay the Black Army to go exert his claim, so... Yeah, that went nowhere. And actually, he stopped paying the Black Army, and they rose in revolt and had to be put down. There were a lot of executions. It got ugly. Now, unfortunately for everyone here, Alexander is, remember, the new Grand Duke of Lithuania, is quite like his two brothers. Uh, and he's kind of not that willing to step up and take charge and really rule. He just kind of wants to chill out. And so 
Thinking about him coming to the throne, I, I want to mention that over the next few years, the Duchy of Lithuania is going to not only kind of split from the Kingdom of Poland and the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, but is going to lose immense amounts of territory to a growing regional power, the Grand Duchy of Moscow. Now, During these years, its rule, Ivan the Great, finally defeated the Golden Horde, ending centuries of Mongol domination in the region, and managed to take around a third of the immense landmass controlled by Lithuania. It's also important to note that he did so in part by actually allying with Stephen of Moldavia. So, yeah, Stephen's making some trouble for Poland yet again. But just to have this context, by the early 1500s, Moscow is now an important regional power to contend with. Now, in that same year of Casimir's death, events far away were also taking place, which would have a profound effect on the history of Bulgaria and Europe and the world, to be honest. Now, for 780 years, dating all the way back to when Khan Kormesoy was ruling the very newly established First Bulgarian Empire, Christian states had been fighting to take back the Iberian Peninsula from Muslim forces. Well, in 1492, that process, the later stages of which are called the Reconquista, was completed when the Moors were finally completely forced out of the city of Granada. Within months, the joint monarchs of Castile and Aragon, now ruling a united Spain, issued the Alhambra Decree, also known as the Edict of Expulsion. It expelled all practicing Jews from the Kingdom of Spain, ostensibly to prevent them from reconverting the Jews who had already been forcibly converted to Catholicism. Now, Jews had been important citizens of the Muslim state of Al-Andalus, which Spain had replaced contributing enormously to its scientific and literary accomplishments. But the harsh Catholicism of Spain would simply not tolerate the existence of non-Catholics on its territory. The result was 200,000 more Jews, in addition to those who had already done it, converting to Catholicism under duress in order to be allowed to remain in Spain. And then, yet another forty to 100,000 fleeing the country rather than giving up their religion. Those who fled went to many places, but an enormous number went to the Ottoman Empire. Well, okay, they didn't exactly go to the Ottoman Empire. They were brought to the Ottoman Empire. Why brought, you say? Well, because upon hearing of this expulsion, Sultan Bayezid sent the Ottoman navy to bring these Jews to his lands for refuge. Now, why would he do this? Well, lucky for us, we have his own words to tell us. He said, quote, Those who say that Ferdinand and Isabella are wise are indeed fools, for he gives me his enemy, his national treasure, the Jews. End quote. In other words, as noted, the Jewish population of Spain was highly educated and an immensely valuable group of people that any state not driven mad by religious bigotry would have welcomed. So these Jews were settled in the Ottoman Empire because the empire sent a proclamation all around saying that they, these Jews were to be welcomed anywhere they went in the empire, although in particular many were settled in Izmir and Thessalonica. Many thousands also settled throughout the Balkans and indeed in Bulgaria. And though we know Jews have lived in Bulgaria for centuries, remember one of the old Tsars married one, but by this point 
there, it still was a fairly small population. And it was added to greatly by this new population of so-called Sephardic Jews. So this Sephardic Jewish population is going to form kind of the backbone of the Jewish community of Bulgaria, which exists to this day. And frankly, Bayezid was not wrong in his assessment of the situation. This population did make an enormous contribution to the technology, art, and literature of the Ottoman Empire, including bringing it its first printing press in 1493. Although that same year, the very first book in southeastern Europe was printed in Zeta, so they didn't quite catch that particular milestone. Now, all this together is kind of another reminder that while it had its problems, it had its brutality, it, it was flawed in all of its own ways, but at this point, the Ottoman Empire was far more religiously tolerant than the Christian states of Europe. And this shows that. Now, interestingly enough, another quick point, 1492 was, those of you who grew up in the U.S. probably know this, also the year when Christopher Columbus made it to the Americas. Now, recognizing that the Vikings were definitely the first ones to do this, still, you know, this marks the year from which Europe is kind of slowly made aware of the existence of these new continents far off to the west. Now, the existence of the Americas is not going to impact uh, the, the kind of main characters of our story for quite a while, but it's good to mark this major event in world history. Anyway, so... 1493 also saw the return of Ottoman raids on Hungary following a year's respite after their loss at the Battle of Verpile. In the summer, 8,000 cavalry first attacked the powerful Bosnian fortress and former capital of Jais. Remember, the Hungarians captured it when Bosnia fell, and they had basically been using it as a border fortress ever since. But that attack failed. With that failure, the Ottoman force moved into Croatia. Now there, two noble families were sort of embroiled in a little mini-war. Despite the fact that Croatia was ruled by Vladislaus in Hungary, remember, Vladislaus wasn't that interested in getting involved, and so he was kind of apparently letting all of this happen. The Ottoman army arrived, uh, and it kind of prompted both sides of that war to stop fighting each other and pulled together an army to challenge the Ottomans. And so these two armies met on an open plain in a mountainous part of Croatia, near the Adriatic. The battle began with the Ottomans executing Christian prisoners and sending 3,000 cavalry to lay an ambush in a nearby forest, which ideally would be behind Croatian lines once the Croatians were drawn in. Interestingly enough, Ishak Bey Karyagu, formerly known as Sigismund of Bosnia, the last king of the, or the last son of the last king of Bosnia, was fighting on the Ottoman side in this battle. Just an interesting side note there. So the Croatians were initially set up on a slope. They were kind of on a hill, which provided some advantage, but they didn't stay there. They quickly rushed down the hill to meet the Ottomans head-on. And by doing so, they played right into Ottoman hands. The Croatians pushed the Ottomans back, thinking that they were winning. But they were actually being drawn into an ambush set before the battle. Suddenly, at some moment, Ottoman cavalry came out of the forest and slammed into the Croatians from behind, just as more Ottoman reinforcements came at them from the front. Their results were devastating. Those who could not retreat to a nearby fortified town were surrounded and killed or captured. The Croatians suffered a total defeat, losing around three-quarters of their ten to 11,000 troops. 
In addition, many Croatian nobles were killed or captured. Though this was only a raiding party, not a full army, this was a devastating defeat for Croatia, harming its manpower and nobility for years to come, and allowing the Ottomans to annex a stretch of Adriatic coast near Bosnia. This raid is also seen to have kind of kicked off the Hundred Years Croatian-Ottoman War, a century of low-scale warfare between Croatia and the Ottomans. Now, also in 1493, Frederick III, Holy Roman Emperor, died and was succeeded by his son Maximilian. This is hardly a surprise. Remember, Maximilian already had the title King of the Romans, which was kind of the precursor title to being Holy Roman Emperor. But it is important to note that the Holy Roman Emperor office is an elected office. So although in this case it went to the son, it wasn't necessarily going to be the case. Another kind of unrelated event of 1493 happened in Bulgaria, near Sofia, where the Kremikovci Monastery, which had been established uh, during the reign of Tsar Ivan Alexander during the Second Bulgarian Empire around the mid-14th century. Uh, so back at this monastery, it was destroyed at the end of 1398 when the Ottomans conquered Sofia. But now about a century later, a boyar, who was also the Metropolitan Bishop of Sofia, rebuilt the main church. Now this kind of ties into what I said about the Jewish expulsion from Spain. It's further evidence that the religious element of Ottoman rule was not as harsh as it is perceived today. Now, true, there were times when it was. Uh, I also mentioned earlier, you know, 3,000 Christian uh, prisoners being executed uh, at the beginning of a battle. But, you know, it were kind of two sides of these same coins. You could get both. You could get this uh, brutality and you could get uh, a regime that was okay to allow a church like this to be rebuilt. Now, there were times when the Ottomans were more repressive and less repressive. Uh, later on, yeah, churches are going to have to be built to certain height restrictions, but at this point, that doesn't seem to be the case. And so the boyars were allowed to simply build this Bulgarian church as if uh, everything was normal. Also in Hungary in 1493, that was the year the famous Black Army finally met its end. We could probably all see this coming after their revolt. But yes, after the death of Matthias Corvinus, the nobles of Hungary were kind of against keeping the Black Army because it was expensive. And it had been accused of heresy, and had revolted. Things were pretty ugly. And so they finally formally dissolved it, which meant that on the one hand, Hungary saved a lot of money, but also they lost a very effective fighting force. But nobody seemed to be very worried about the fighting element because Hungary seemed quite confident in their defensive system. As in 1492, the Ottomans had attacked a Danubian fortress, and the result was, quote, two cartloads of Turkish heads being sent to Buda, end quote. Lastly, 1493 saw an attempt by Stephen of Moldavia to join with the rulers of Lithuania and Moscow for an anti-Ottoman crusade. But, well, you could probably guess they were too busy fighting each other to really get involved. And so Stephen just sat there alone wondering what to do, no doubt. And well, that's going to do it for today. We leave things with new rulers in Hungary, Poland, and Lithuania, as well as the Holy Roman Empire. Unfortunately, the three brothers ruling all but the Holy Roman Empire seem rather weak and uninterested in actively ruling. However, in April of 1494, Vladislaus, John Albert, and Alexander the three brothers and the three rulers of the most powerful states in Central Europe, 
gathered to discuss the possibility of an anti-Ottoman crusade. The question is whether these brothers might be more than the sum of their parts, whether their combined might may well challenge the Ottomans. Next time, we'll find out. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. As always, Uspech.